Welcome to the special bulletin review sponsored by Decision Lens. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Acquisition accounts for one in five dollars the Army spends each year. A lot of money. Acquisition is a planning and execution challenge because of changing requirements and difficulty of projecting them over the typical DOD five-year planning process. I discussed this and also his acquisition priority strategies when I spoke with the newly confirmed Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology, Douglas Bush. The Army starts at multiple levels, so way up high, the Army goes through a process to try to allocate funding between the different things it does, and the Army fundamentally does three things. We induct and acquire people through recruiting and retention. We train them uh, in their Army units. And then my area of responsibility, which is we procure equipment for them. And the Army starts out every year with a a process to try to weigh the balance of those three things and prioritize among them. Um, But if you look at the Army's budget, it is primarily those first two things. Research development and acquisition funding tends to be only about 20% of the Army's budget on a year-to-year basis compared to funding for people and training, which dominate the uh, overall budget. All right. And what's the process? I mean, how does it look in terms of just an operation, the planning itself? So internal processes, it varies year-to-year based on um, who the leadership is and what they want to emphasize. But we start out getting very high-level guidance from the secretary in terms of things we are supposed to do in our parts of the budget as we prepare our initial drafts. Um, Sometimes there's very specific tasks. More usually, they are somewhat uh, broad. Uh, And then uh, starting way down in the weeds, it's a bottom-up process. The Army churns through months of work to understand current needs, future needs. So for example, we were just this past few months working on the 24-28 budget cycle. And here we are in early 22. And we started working on that even before we knew what the 22 or 23 budget top lines would be. So there's a lot of looking to the future a couple of years early that the system has to work through. Yeah, and for that matter, no one is certain really what the 2023 top line looks like. It's only a proposal from the administration, and it hasn't even really hit the grinder of Congress. And so exactly. the reality is, at least in general, and I think for pretty much every federal entity has been a year behind when it ought to be, given the the cycle that happens on Capitol Hill, which is outside of anybody's control. So I think there are gear of execution is the term of art in the building uh, processes we have to address short-term needs. There's always things going on. So like right now with Ukraine, for example, there's there's always things that are going to come up that were completely unplanned. The department has mechanisms to address those things bounded by authorities Congress provides, for example, reprogramming funding, or uh, depending on what color of money it is, that determines how much flexibility we have. We have a lot of flexibility in O&M funding, for example, for training operations and maintenance funding. We have less flexibility in research and development and procurement. And yet procurement is often affected by things that happen in the short term also. Yeah, of course. We have, we have some ways to move around funding, though individual conversations with Congress sometimes on well, how how important something is, how much leeway they want to give us. Yeah, because that whole process of reprogramming is, I guess, something kind of gets done year after year in DOD. And often the various armed services and the fourth estate agencies' requests get rolled up into one big reprogramming request. And it's, it's bureaucratic. It takes a long time. 
what are some of the issues you have with that? I mean, in terms of just being able to execute in the execution year, given the time it takes to get a reprogramming done and approved. So I've seen, uh, I'd really categorize it two ways. What I would call re routine reprogrammings are, as you described, somewhat laborious. They're, they tend to go over in large sets. We do, however, and we have in the past, and I was worked for Congress on the committee for 15 years for the Armed Services Committee. We would receive, though, smaller ones that were more urgent, especially during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we were trying to meet a very near-term uh, issue, uh, like an urgent operational need, for example, that would have come from somebody in theater. So it's a mix of both. Uh, I think the department, and I've seen it since I got here, if something is a true emergency and leadership is focused on making it happen quickly, can be very responsive. Um, but that isn't what a lot of issues that matter kind of happen in that routine process. So uh, not everything's a, a crisis. And what's the process by which the Army translates the future requirements? You mentioned you look out five years and, you know, the force and strength is generally known what's going to be. As you say, that's what kind of drives everything is the number of people brought in that need to be trained and then the end strength is somewhat related to that. But that also has to translate into dollar requirements, uh, dollar needs. And how, how do you keep track in a sense to know that your dollar requirements are an accurate reflection of both what the Army will need and also what the market will be able to provide, especially, say, in inflationary times like we have now? So it's a lot of people very closely watching these things. So I can just, and it's not just in my organization. So across headquarters department of the army, the army G8, for example, has a large staff that does a constant analysis of programs and where they stand. My organization does that as well, because we're the direct connection to our program executive offices that actually buy things and actually acquire things and army contracting command. Um, and then we, of course, are, that all has to be closely tied in with the financial people in the army, the army comptroller, uh, community. So it's really, uh, it's dynamic. It's constant. Uh, we are frequently working on three budgets at the same time. Uh, for example, right now, we're executing FY22. Uh, we're talking about 23 with the Hill, and we are in the middle of planning 24, 28. Right. And uh, before we get into some of that PPB and E process, which I want to get into with you, just as the new, you're fairly new there, as the top tier in acquisition what, what are your what are your some of your acquisition goals in terms of policy i mean what are you trying to effectuate there for army acquisition so i would a uh, couple different areas so first of all i think uh one thing that's often talked about is how we do a better job of moving things out of r d and into production so uh, discussions that center around how do we tap into rapid innovation for example in certain technology areas in the private sector that's going to be a major area of emphasis. Uh, it has been for my predecessors, but I will keep moving the ball down the field on that, bringing in some additional talent to try to develop the right policies so people can do that more effectively. There is a budget planning aspect to that, and this is where uh, it will require us to come up with plans and then engage with Congress because ultimately they have to give us uh, flexibility in research and development accounts, for example, uh, to do things during the year, so to speak, that weren't planned in advance. And that's that's a trust issue. They have to trust us to give us a, uh, for example, a, a pot of money that's not super specified and allow us to do things with it during the year while keeping them informed. I've seen that work. They established pots of money like that during the wars. Uh, we need to try to move that up behavior from kind of wartime behavior to just 
more the stuff we do routinely. The second area is in software. So software is becoming a dominant part of what we acquire. Even hardware systems we buy, a lot of the work is actually the software work. So we have to improve inside the Army our processes for doing that. This is another one where types of money get involved, though, because we have boundaries between legal boundaries between how we can use, for example, research and development, operations and maintenance, and procurement funding. Software is often doing all three at the same time. And the modern software processes aren't really built around such a division of, of, uh, of funding. That's an ongoing conversation with Congress. I think uh, that's one I hope to make progress on in my time here is putting procedures in place here that build enough trust with Congress to get us more flexibility in that area. Um, that'll be a running conversation. And then my last overall thing, and this relates to budgeting, is taking prototypes that have been worked on. We've started a lot of prototyping efforts the last four or five years, actually getting those to production at scale. That's more difficult than it sounds. Although I think uh, actually Elon Musk says a lot about that in terms of uh, production being really hard. He's right. So that's a challenge that I'm taking on, but I think it's a good challenge to have because we've got good prototypes in a lot of cases, but now we got to do the difficult work of producing them at scale, which uh, is a bit of a different challenge than like building one or two of something. Sure. That's what they call the Valley of Death or one of the valleys of death is from R&D to production and deployment. Yes. And just getting back to the software, just a detail there and what you were saying with respect to the color of money for R&D operations and management or out-and-out procurement in the yes. software DevSecOps factory type of model, which I think the armed services are one way or another all moving towards, that crosses all of those colors of money in a given sprint, if you will. Potentially. So uh, the general approach has been to use R&D funding for that type of thing, even when it's uh, doing iterative software releases. At some point, you traditionally move into a procurement type situation. But again, software is never done, is the, the quote that I'm working off of. And we have a new acquisition software pathway approved by OSD in 2020, I believe, that we are only kind of now starting to really use. We're using, I think we have six programs across the Army that are using that new pathway that doesn't look like a traditional pathway at all, where you would have a development phase and then a production phase. It's rather just an endless series of cycles of updates that kind of run off into the future. That's a very different approach. Um, it's a very different thing to budget for as well. Doug Bush, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. We'll return with more of the interview after this short break. I'm Tom Tamman. How can the United States be considered an innovation leader with a government planning process dictated by manual spreadsheets? This high-tech country deserves a high-tech government. DecisionLens Software is here to transform and bring innovation back to the capital. Organizations using DecisionLens achieve operational efficiency. They gain the agility to pivot as priorities shift and the confidence to stand behind an expertly executed budget. Give your agency a competitive advantage. Learn more at DecisionLens.com. Welcome back to our interview with Doug Bush, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. We're discussing Army acquisition priorities and strategies and how to overlay them with the DOD's planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process. I want to overlay this now, all of the activities that you are having as priorities, software development and dealing with the color of money and all of this, plus the fact that like so many agencies, you're dealing with at least three budget years at a time and in many ways mm -hmm. five or six, and overlay that with the 
PPB&E, the, the program, what does it stand for? PPB&E, uh, which starts with the programming objective memorandum, the POM. How do you bump up against that, and what's it like to deal with in this age with a POM and PPBE cycle that dates back so many years, given the contemporary needs and the need to speed, the need for fast prototyping and deployment and so forth. One thing to recognize, and this kind of zooms it out a level, is that whatever you want to call, whatever process we have, the Department of Defense and the Army, just the Army, are very big places. We're very big enterprises. And the idea that a super small group of people could somehow very rapidly do things much better than our current process, which is frankly kind of democratic and bottoms up, brings in a lot of voices and a lot of elements of the Army into the discussion, um, I think it's a bit of a false choice. I think anything the Army has is going to be broad-based because the Army is so big and we have so many entities that should have a voice in our hard budget development. Now, could that be done somewhat faster? Perhaps. Um, modern technology certainly helps that. I think, I think one thing to keep in mind with PVBE reform is that ultimately that process is built to provide Congress a budget in the form that they want. So Congress will have to be part of any discussions about changing that because the output is what they get um, and they will have to be fully involved. So if you look at how that process has evolved over the years, I think there's lots of good academic work on this um, in terms of like number of R&D lines. There used to be relatively small number of them. And then uh, if you go back and look at National Defense Authorization Acts from the 60s and 70s, uh, actually a very small number of procurement lines Tactical aircraft, for example, would be grouped into one thing. And you can imagine how many different tactical aircraft were in that category. Over time, because of a desire for increased oversight, Congress has, and the department has responded, has kind of more and more fine-grained our output to Congress in terms of how detailed the request is. Uh, so if that were to become more flexible, for example, grouping things that are currently broken out into tens of lines into one, uh, Congress have to be part of that conversation and comfortable with that approach. That is a way to uh, get the kind of flexibility I think people talk about and the uh, and uh, give us more ability to turn on things faster. Uh, it would require a lot of trust from Congress to give us money and more flexible accounts. Um, so I'm optimistic. I'm going to try to leverage my years on the Hill to have those conversations about Army accounts and see what progress I can make. And in the day-to-day -day practicalities of this, what are the challenges you find in simply making sure that all the data can be marshaled to be able to have an effective budget execution and to be able to make those adjustments or request those adjustments as might be required as time moves on? That's a good question. So there is a lot of churn right now about how to use data better across the department and the army. And that's trending with the private sector's approach to a large degree, um, which I think is a good conversation to have. Um, I'm always cautious of, of data theater. Uh, in other words, the appearance of data-based decisions that are, are in fact somewhat artificial. So what I'm focused on with our team is making sure that we are identifying a limited number of the right data items that are meaningful and do need to be more widely known across the enterprise to ensure coordination is done the way kind of you're describing. Uh, I think there's a lot of good work that preceded me on that. It's something I'm gonna have to keep working on though. There are also lots of efforts at Office of Secretary of Defense, for example, on how to use data better in 
acquisition planning. So it's going to be a running conversation with uh, Dr. LaPlante, who just got just got confirmed. Um, so that's one of the things I'm sure um, he's going to uh, be wanting to talk to all the services about. Again, in the practical sense, often the data that is needed could be in a variety of different formats that may not be able to be necessarily machine readable, or I think a lot of the uh, elements are still using big giant spreadsheets, which present their own difficulties. It's not unified database, and you just simply have to pick the data you want and integrate it. Sometimes there are issues with the data itself. In some cases, I've run into both. We've got, I think, in the Army acquisition world, a very effective uh, database we use to track, especially financial information, very closely and in real time. And it also has a program status tracking aspect to it. However, depending on what people want to know, we do still run into the situations you described where it's a massive PowerPoint you know, drill or Excel drill to try to actually put together information in a format that senior leaders want. On the other hand, uh, the Army's done some very innovative things. We have a platform we developed uh, with a private company that, for example, allowed us to very quickly um, during the Afghanistan uh, events last year, put together kind of a dashboard for senior leaders to track critical data during the operation in real time. And that was done in a matter of days. So I think the technology is there. Uh, our responsibility here is to, one of my responsibilities I think is to not overwhelm the system by asking for information and data from my lower levels because I want them focused on doing their jobs, not just feeding me information. But uh, that's always a balance in management is uh, not micromanaging, but having enough information to manage. Right. So then the technical challenge, if you will, is just having access to the correct information and weeding out the noise, which might look good, but doesn't really help you on budget execution or program execution. That's a good way to put it. I think budget execution, we have pretty exquisite data. I think program execution, there's always a bit of an art to that in terms of uh, when something, an issue or a problem, for example, gets elevated. Um, but I think uh, as I develop my relationship with my program executive offices, um, I think we're finding a good balance point between I want I want them to be able to run their programs. and uh, But at the same time, we here at the headquarters have to know enough of what's going on in order to make sure that we're protecting their funding, for example, but also helping them solve problems. And if you would, just for a moment, just zero in, I want to return to that point of getting those innovative programs or those R&D developments over the valley of death, to use the cliche one more time, into production. Mm -hmm. What do you see as possible ways to do that? So one thing that has to happen better is, uh, you know, it's talked about as a valley. Well, a valley implies two sides. So uh, one side of that has to be some element of the army that actually wants what is being worked on and is going to actually field it and maintain it and use it. Uh, what I've seen happen is a communications problem, frankly, between people in the research and development space who are working with companies on innovative technology and then kind of what I would call the day-to-day -day army that's out there just doing army stuff. And bringing those together early is key because if you, you can work on something really neat and it might provide an interesting capability, but if nobody wants it in the operational force, I don't have the authority to just go buy things. So bringing the kind of operational community closer to the research development community uh, is a major part of that. And 
you know, we have obviously all the technology we need to have conversations with folks. It's more of a, how do you manage those conversations to make sure they happen at the right time. Another factor is funding. So to go back to your earlier point on funding flexibility, sometimes you can have the R&D folks linked up completely with the operational folks, but there's no available funding to rapidly pursue the technology. So that gets back to what I was talking about with a little more leeway from Congress on funding for doing quick turn things that have emerged quickly versus the kind of the normal two year cycle. Uh, those really are the two key factors. Um, there's a, I would say there is a third one though, and this one doesn't get discussed enough. Sometimes everything comes together, but we don't have the money. So it's just, the technology might be great, but we just like, for example, in the army, forget funding flexibility. We just don't, we just can't afford it, at least with the budget we have. So that's another factor sometimes that comes into play. Right. So then the essential challenge is having this five-year budget process and overlaying that with sometimes the breakthrough development that is needed, that comes out well in R&D and is desired by an Army component or the Army as a whole, reconciling those two issues. It is. Uh, one thing I would point to, and I saw this as a staffer for many years, uh, first of all, Congress has occasionally, and not occasionally, many times actually, given us the kind of funding flexibility I'm talking about in a classified program world. Those are often done very quickly uh, to meet urgent needs um, with really streamlined authorities, and Congress is fully on board with that and provides us with that flexibility. What I think the system would like to see is that kind of flexibility and behavior move more into just routine programs where not every, you know, it's not just the exquisite super high priority things that get that flexibility, but other things get it because we can save a lot of money and a lot of time. Uh, that, that was very helpful. Um, I, I guess uh, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, the department's always evolving its processes, always will. It's kind of, you know, never, kind of never done. Uh, and I think uh, it's a matter of just continuing to improve and adapt but you hit on it. I can't emphasize enough the, the need to be synced with Congress on anything that has to do with funding flexibility. We can talk ourselves to death among ourselves here in DOD, but if Congress isn't completely on board, we won't be able to do it. So it's something where, with my background, I'm hoping to try to move, you know, move the ball down the field there and make some progress. Doug Bush, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. To hear this interview again or share it with colleagues, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Federal Insights. I'm Tom Tammen. Thank you for listening to the special bulletin review sponsored by Decision Lens on Federal News Network. How can the United States be considered an innovation leader with a government planning process dictated by manual spreadsheets? This high-tech country deserves a high-tech government. Decision Lens Software is here to transform and bring innovation back to the capital. Organizations using Decision Lens achieve operational efficiency. They gain the agility to pivot as priorities shift and the confidence to stand behind an expertly executed budget. Give your agency a competitive advantage. Learn more at DecisionLens.com.